Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So there's a lot of attention on generational groups lately. The most recent focus is the tension between millennials and boomers. Don't roll your eyes yet. We wanted to have a productive conversation about the millennial generation for a portion of the show today. The Connecticut Health Investigative Team, or CHIT, reported a recent story that millennials, or people between the ages of 23 and 38, are seeing growing rates of major depression in recent years. We wanted to know more, so in studio with me now is Valerie Laputra, who's statewide Young Adult Program Coordinator for the Connecticut chapter of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, or NAMI. Valerie, welcome to our show. Hi, thank you for having me, Lucy. And our listeners can join us as well. The number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Valerie, we invited you into the studio because you were actually featured in this uh, Connecticut Health Investigative Team article, which will be on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live, focusing on uh, millennial mental health. And so uh, tell me, uh, we thought it was really interesting when we saw this statistic that a major depression among millennials is growing in recent years, uh, up 31 percent from 2014 to 2017. Um, Is that a, a surprising statistic for someone who works for NAMI? I'm not really surprised. I mean, nationally, even all throughout the spectrum of ages, depression has risen, too. So um, for millennial generation, um, we're in that working field now, uh, graduating from college and experiencing like the economy changes and everything going on right now. So um, I'm not surprised. Mm. You said we. So you're someone who's in the millennial generation? Yeah, I guess I'm technically in the tail end because I'm 25, so 1994. So, yeah. And so uh, when you said that um, depression is actually going up uh, among different age groups nationwide, what are some of the reasons for that? I think there's some different factors. Um, There's a lot of trauma that I think that um, we've experienced growing up. Um, So if, if you're looking at the the higher rates of depression there's also like an increase of cardiovascular disease and other issues going on um so when i think about trauma i think about like the aces score so those who might have experienced some adverse childhood experiences have a higher rate mm. or uh, increase of depression and other uh, health condition issues mm. uh, you um help uh, with some support groups that uh, nami has around the state that are focusing in on millennials uh, tell us about when these groups started and um you know who are the people that are coming to you so they they started i think back in 2014 was when they when they originally boomed um but i jumped in in 2017 i was i started as a facilitator of the of one of the groups in middletown and then I kind of changed the model a little bit because I felt that the focus was primarily on illness and we needed to focus more on wellness and the eight dimensions of wellness to help young people uh, thrive in their communities. So in addition to just talking about 
managing their mental health. There's also, you know, financial, uh, physical health, uh, spiritual growth, everything that young people need in order to be successful as adults. Mm. So, yeah. And so uh, you had mentioned that you are considered a millennial and you've also um, dealt with some mental health challenges. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that influences the work of these support groups that you're part of? Sure. So um, I can tell you that I was a very anxious child growing up. Um, I started to experience uh, depressive symptoms, I guess you'd say, around 17 years old. And um, I was very academically driven. So even though things were kind of crumbling around me, my academics were very, very strong. But when I reached my senior year in high school, I was starting to feel the effects so much that I wasn't showing up to school. My grades were dropping a little bit, and that's when I kind of realized I needed to put college on hold. And that kind of messed with my identity in a little bit because I worked so hard to do so well in my academics. So I think what for me was I transformed that experience of needing to take time off and figuring out how to move out of the house, how to be an adult, have my own apartment, take care of uh, my family, take care of my own needs. And I figured this seems to be very common for a lot of young people, um, whether they're still on their parents' insurance or they're looking to get off their parents' insurance or they're being kicked off their parents' insurance. Um, or they don't really know where to begin with with taking care of themselves. Um, A lot of people who experience depression might find it harder to hold a job. So a lot of the themes that I see even in our groups, people talking about how do I take care of myself? How do I tell my employer if I might be experiencing Mm. some depression or other mental health challenges? Uh, What does that look like if they kick me out because I missed work because I was sick, because I had some mental health challenges? Um, even how, how do I make sure I fit in my schedule coping skills? Because when it comes to health, you have to figure out ways to manage it. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to your mental health, it's the same thing. So we kind of embedded that in our support group model. Mm. How do you answer some of those questions that um, these young people may have, especially if uh, um, they're uh, dealing with an illness mm-hmm. and they worry if it's disclosed to their employer that there'll be repercussions? So we always refer them um, to even like the Connecticut Legal Rights Project. And also with NAMI, we have programs that teach people how to uh, disclose as well. And um, even with like our Ending the Silence program, we teach young people to be able to transform their experience to teach other people about their lived experience to help promote that um, that common talk about mental health. Um, We also look for other young people in the group for their feedback because we think that shared conversation really does help a lot. You're hearing Valerie Laputra, statewide young adult program coordinator for the Connecticut chapter of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, or NAMI, as we learn about support groups that are geared towards uh, people who are considered millennials, again, between the ages of 23 and 38. If if you're one of them and uh, you've wondered uh, about support for you, if you're dealing with a mental health uh, uh, illness, you can join our conversation, 888 or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live. Uh, Valerie, 
Valerie, as part of your personal story, you mentioned that uh, there were, you were dealing with a lot of pressures and it impacted um, your abilities um, where you didn't feel like you were ready quite for college. Uh, and you, when we talk about uh, just some of the stressors that young people are facing today, is it seem more and more prevalent that uh, young people uh, don't have the, the, um, the ways to cope with certain stresses and they need to find other ways of help, such as these support groups? Yeah, I mean, I think um, most, I mean, I grew up in a very small town, so it was expected for us to go straight from high school to college. And so even when I graduated high school and I didn't start college soon enough, I had a lot of people in the community coming up to me. I was working at a local pharmacy and they were like, Valerie, I thought you were going to Hofstra University. What's going on? And I felt very ashamed of, of that experience. So for I think for a lot of people, that that stigma of, well, I can't really tell you why I might not be going to college or um, I'm not really even sure how to navigate that. Some people haven't finished high school. They don't know how to navigate, you know, getting their credits, you know. So um, I think for for my own personal experience, being able to, like, take that 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 challenge and, and kind of flip it and look at it on the positive light of. I'm taking care of myself. My mental health is the most important thing right now. And I don't have to explain that to anybody, but I'm going to someday use that to help other people. Mm. When we think about mental health services, you know, are there enough service providers in our state to deal uh, with people who may need extra support, uh, whether it's a th- uh, going to a therapist or just uh, being part of a support group, even substance abuse issues, which we know um, is a growing up issue, not just here, but nationwide? Well, we know that one in five people have experienced some type of depression, and we know suicide's the second leading cause of death for young people. So I don't know if we have necessarily enough providers, but a lot of it, too, is a lot of people who are um, even on commercial insurance are having a hard time finding providers that take their insurance. And even if, if people choose to take medication for to treat their mental health challenges, uh, some providers don't even accept insurance. So access to care is huge, and, and it's not. We need to work on that. Mm. And so, if that is an issue that someone in your support group uh, brings up, you know, how do you help them resolve that? Especially if, um, say, you uh, a young person has been on their parents' uh, insurance until twenty six, and then after that, uh, they need to find uh, insurance, whether it's employer based or signing up for the exchange. How do they navigate that? So we focus a lot on access health. Um, I, I used to work as a peer specialist, p- peer supporter, working with young that transition age youth, and we would I would sit down and we would call together, even if it was trying to get them on Husky or whatever kind of Medicaid insurance plan that they need that fits their their uh, their experiences. So, the the power of of working together. Some people are just so overwhelmed that they can't do it themselves. But if you have a group of people saying, "Hey, let's let's work on this together as a goal." then that can help somebody exponentially. You mentioned suicide. You also lead suicide prevention workshops. Uh, The rates of suicide increasing nationwide for all age groups uh, from 1999 to 2017, according to the federal uh, CDC. For people um, who want to know more, if they uh, need help, uh, where can they go, Valerie? Well, uh, Connecticut has PreventSuicideCT.org. It's the Connecticut Suicide Advisory Board. Um, They're also more than welcome to contact us at NAMI Connecticut. We have our own programs that we work with the 
with the Suicide Advisory Board, and of course AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, has a lot of programs as well. There's also a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline that I can uh, give the number out, 1-800-273-8255. You can also call 211 in Connecticut. Uh, Valerie, we, we talked about these support groups that you're helping facilitate for listeners who want to know more, especially if they're in that millennial age range. Uh, where can they go to learn more? Um, on our website, www.namict.org. Uh, we have a whole list of all the different types of support groups out there. We even offer uh, substance prevention, substance use uh, support groups for family members and for those experiencing challenges with substances and other addictive-related issues, too. I'm going to thank Valerie Laputra for joining us. She's Statewide Young Adult Program Coordinator for the Connecticut Chapter of the National Alliance for Mental Illness, or NAMI. Again, we'll have more information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Valerie, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Lucy. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. After the break, we're going to shift our focus to Hong Kong, which saw record turnout in local elections on Sunday. After the island has seen pro-democracy demonstrations for the last six months, we're going to learn about why that is. And you can learn more, too. Just uh, keep listening. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Have you been watching what's happening in Hong Kong? Just hours after Patrick Chow was shot by police during a demonstration, another man was set on fire allegedly by protesters. And it was one of the most dramatic days in over five months of protests. That's a clip from CNN about the shooting of a protester, Patrick Chow, by Hong Kong police. That was back on November 11th. Now, pro-democracy protesters have been taking to the streets in Hong Kong for nearly six months, and it's having an impact. Most recently, it turned an otherwise sleepy election into one with a high voter turnout. The New York Times reporting the surge in voting, especially by young people, allowed democracy advocates to win many more seats on local councils and a sign that Hong Kong residents are unhappy with the Chinese government. Coming up, we'll talk about how the demonstrations, some violent, have affected the way people in Hong Kong view its police. Reporter Alan Yu will join us. First, we wanted to better understand what's going on in Hong Kong, an island that operates like its own country, but it's actually not. Hong Kong is a Chinese territory. For more, joining us by phone is Yuan Chan, senior lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University of London. She was also a longtime Hong Kong-based journalist. UN, welcome to our show. Um, good morning, Lucy. Can we start with the news, UN? What is your response to this record turnout we're hearing from these elections on Sunday? Well, obviously, um, there was some jubilation among supporters of uh, the pro-democracy uh, forces in Hong Kong this morning um, because there was a record turnout rate of more than 71%. That's 2.9 million out of an electorate of 4.1 million people. And what we saw was um, almost a, quick, a clean sweep of the 18 district councils of Hong Kong. 17 of them uh, are now in the control of the pro-democracy uh, parties and groupings in Hong Kong. So that's obviously a very good showing. And what it shows is that um, it's a slap in the face of the government, which has seemed to be very intransigent to people's demands, primarily for a um, independent commission of inquiry into alleged police brutality and the way that they've handled these protests, um, that, which is now a key demand, along with um, having 
truly free and open um, elections for both the um, Hong Kong's Legislative Council and Chief Executive by universal suffrage. Um, so that's what we've essentially seen today. But we've also seen people saying that it's... Um, it's okay, this is the first time in the last five or six months that we've uh, genuinely been allowed to be happy, but we've still got a lot of work to do. And people are very aware of the fact um, that their struggle is far from over, and that in fact there are still some protesters holed up in one of the university campuses uh, where they've been for over a week now. So, so there, and, and some of the winning candidates marched down to that university campus to show uh, the protesters there that they not been forgotten. Mm. Uh, we've talked about or mentioned at least uh, these protests have been going on for nearly six months, but we wanted some more context about uh, Hong Kong and its relationship with China. Uh, when we look at Hong Kong today, uh, it looks like a democracy. We're talking about elections, but uh, not technically a truly democratic system, UN. You're absolutely right, and and I, I think that the way that you characterized it, it looks like a democracy, um, is part of the problem. From the outside, um, people see elections taking place, they appear to be free and fair, and so a lot of people will come to the conclusion that Hong Kong is a democracy. Uh, the situation in Hong Kong is that um, what you actually have had for a long time, and this even you know predates 1997 to the colonial times under the British, is that Hong Kong was a free society, so it's a society that had freedom, uh, freedom of the press, freedom of information, people can freely publish, um, and it has an independent judiciary, but it is not fully democratic. Um, so the elections that we just saw that just took place, therefore local councils, they're called district councils, and um, these elections are actually by far the most democratic of Hong Kong's elections because um, all of, nearly all of the seats are actually uh, elected by one person, one vote, single vote system. Um, but the Legislative Council, which is one step high, is the higher level of um, legislature in Hong Kong, um, is a very strange kind of hybrid creature. So there are 70 seats overall in that council. Um, 30 of them are elected via proportional representation according to geographical constituency. So those are uh, fully democratic as one would understand that term. Um, but a further 30 are actually um, composed of what are called functional constituencies. Uh, that means there are 30 members of the council who represent certain interests in Hong Kong. And these can range from the insurance sector um, to the um, legal sector, engineering, banking, finance, tourism, um, education, and so on. Um, and what you have there is that you have a far smaller number of people, um, a much more limited franchise, uh, returning 30 members uh, to the Legislative Council. So in effect, that means that in the last ele uh, Legislative Council elections, you had around 3.7 million ordinary voters um, voting for 35 seats. And on the other hand, um, you have around 226,000 uh, voters um, electing 30 members. So that's a really um, dis disparate number mm -hmm. there. Um, and to, just to give you an example, for instance, in the insurance functional constituency, 141 electors, 141 
uh, electors, mainly corporate bodies, will vote for one member of the council. Um, and so within mm. even the functional constituencies, there's a huge disparity because while 141 insurance sector members vote for one member of the council, on the other hand, 36,000 or nearly 36,500 members of the health services workers, health sector workers, will also elect one member. So you can see from that example um, what a gaping gap there is mm. um, in terms of the franchise. And, and that's um, an example of how, um, why a lot of Hong Kongers feel that their system is rigged. Mm. Yeah, uh, so. I wanted to just remind our listeners, I'm speaking with Yuan Chan, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University of London. Also, uh, she was a longtime Hong Kong-based journalist. We wanted to uh, learn more about these demonstrations, uh, what led to the demonstrations in Hong Kong. Again, uh, this uh, is a territory of mainland China. Uh, you mentioned uh, the roots of it being a British colony. So let's uh, let's back up a little bit, UN, and talk yeah. about what happened uh, in 1997. This this handover uh, to from uh, Great Britain to the UK, and how uh, again uh, Hong Kong functions as a territory of China. Right. So um, Britain had administered Hong Kong since the 1840s as a colony of the United Kingdom. Um, so this is a result of um, some treaties that were signed uh, at the end of the um, 19th century. Um, and un under the, so it was, there were actually three treaties, one which ceded the island of Hong Kong uh, to Britain in perpetuity. But the sticking point is really with the treaty on uh, some land called the New Territories in Hong Kong, which was ceded to Britain on a 99-year lease. And what happened was in the late 70s and the 80s, the question of um, new leases and loans in, issued in Hong Kong, uh, would they still be valid after that lease expired? So there was a need uh, for Britain to, to negotiate with China and decide on the future of Hong Kong. And during that time, it became clear, despite what what Britain had wanted at the time was to continue to administer Hong Kong, but this was flatly rejected by the Chinese mm. side. And so negotiations had uh, to begin uh, about Hong Kong's future. And eventually in 1984, um, a document called the Sino-British Joint Declaration was signed by these two sides, um, under which Britain agreed to cede um, sovereignty of Hong Kong to the Chinese side and that Hong Kong would become a special administrative region of China after 1997 uh, on the condition of this policy called one country, two systems, which means that Hong Kong would retain a high degree of autonomy um, and that its way of life would be unchanged for 50 years and that all of this would be enshrined in a doc in a the basic law, which people popularly call Hong Kong's mini-constitution. And this would ensure that Hong Kong would continue to enjoy a free press, um, the capitalist um, economic system, and an independent judiciary uh, and legal system, its own currency, 
uh, and so on and so forth. Mm. So that was the basis upon which um, Britain transferred sovereignty of Hong Kong over to the People's Republic of China in 1997. I understand there have been uh, tensions uh, prior to this year uh, where protests uh, um, have formed among Hong Kong residents, uh, I guess, in 2003, and then most recently back in 2014, also known as the Umbrella Movement. What led to those protests, UN? Well, in 2003, um, Hong Kong had just been through a difficult time with SARS um, economically. Um, But what was the trigger for the 2003 protests was the government of the time, the Hong Kong government of the time, wanted to introduce um, a national security law. It's popularly called the uh, Article 23 because Article 23 of the Basic Law uh, stipulates that Hong Kong must on its own enact national security legislation. Um, At the time, a lot of Hong Kong people were very dissatisfied with that because they saw that they could see that it would become an infringement on their primarily free speech and expression. Um, and so um, a lot of people took to the streets. It was actually half a million people at least, which at the time was quite unprecedented. Um, and this eventually led to that legislation, um, that proposed legislation being withdrawn and also eventually to the resignation of the then chief executive of Hong Kong. So that was in 2003. Mm. Um, in 2014, um, it was really the trigger for that was the fact that Hong Kong people had been for so many years um, striving to see the promises of having free, fair elections by universal suffrage of their leader, the chief executive, and also full democratic elections for the Legislative Council. And this had been delayed and delayed. Um, There were blueprints that were put forward and then sort of scuppered or found unsatisfactory and and in any case they did not get the elections that they wanted and so 2014 was about that Mm. Um, and they decided that they would show through civil disobedience um, because every other method had failed um, their resolve to achieve that aim. Mm. And so now, uh, fast forward to 2019, uh, these uh, recent protests uh, again, um, starting, I guess it's been almost uh, six months. Uh, it started peaceful, but then there have been violent clashes. Uh, why has the, the movement changed, uh, UN? Primarily, I would say um, it's been a response to um, the police use of force. Um, What happened was at the beginning of June, um, there was a huge peaceful demonstration of um, a million people asking for the withdrawal of a controversial uh, extradition bill that would have paved the way for anybody in Hong Kong to be extradited uh, for trial and imprisonment in mainland China. Um, And the government's reaction to that was seen as highly unsatisfactory. It refused to withdraw or even postpone the bill. Um, And this very intransigent and um, aloof, arrogant um, response uh, led to um, people deciding that they needed to take um, more forceful action. And what they tried to do was they took to the streets, some people took to the streets and surrounded the Legislative Council to prevent the um, further reading of the bill that would have allowed that legislation to pass. Uh, And on that day, the police responded with... um, 
lots of tear gas and with rubber bullets. And this was very unprecedented and unheard of in Hong Kong uh, to have that level of force against um, protesters. Um, so as a result of that, the government thought um, that people would not come and protest so much, but the following weekend, two million people came out. Um, and again, and who and UN? Who are yeah. these people? Uh, I know yeah. that in press reports, it's often described as uh, a movement led by young people. But is that accurate? So the young, there are definitely a lot of young people out there on the streets, and a lot of the frontline protesters that you see, and the people involved in the more radical actions. Are primarily young people, um, you know, even if just for the sheer fact that you need to have a lot of physical stamina in a, in order to um, engage in those kinds of protests. Uh, but behind those young people, there are a lot of um, very wide swathes of Hong Kong society who are basically uh, supporting the the movement's demands. Um, that being originally the withdrawal of the bill um, and this and the establishment of an independent inquiry into the police actions uh, and for universal suffrage. So there is huge support for that within society. And opinion poll after opinion poll have shown that. They've shown um, a break, a complete breakdown of trust, really, in the Hong Kong police force and an overwhelming uh, demand for greater political reform. So that cuts across uh, society, and I think that's reflected in the district council election results as well, because you would not have got the results that we got if it were only young people voting for Democratic candidates. Yuan Chan is senior lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University of London, joining us today via phone on where we live as we uh, get more context on the situation on the ground in Hong Kong. Again, um, nearly six months of pro-democracy demonstrations. There have been violent clashes with police. We're going to be talking more about that coming up here on where we live. Uh, Yuan, you gave us um, some uh, good background on the relationship between Hong Kong and China, but I'm curious how uh, people in Hong Kong today identify themselves. Is there a general Generational divide. I understand there's a term Hong Kongers uh, are older uh, residents. Do they see themselves as Chinese before they see themselves as Hong Kongers? Well, this is um, something that's been happening since 1997. There have been polls that have tracked the way Hong Kong people identify themselves. And um, I think it's easy now to look and say, oh, well, Hong Kongers reject being Chinese. Um, but it's important to remember that this was never. Uh, and inevitability. So in the early years after the handover, um, in fact, you had you saw a rise in the um, percentage of Hong Kong people who saw themselves as um, either Chinese or Chinese Hong Kongers or Hong Kongers who were also Chinese. Um, and really, it's been in the last, since 2008, that that has uh, begun to turn around. And in 2014, beginning 2014, it's um, plummeted even further as it continues to do so today. And among the young, that is especially the case. So especially among the young, it's the case that um, youngsters do not see themselves as Chinese and increasingly see themselves as Hong Kongers. Um, It is a generational divide, but it doesn't mean that... um, you know, that all older people um, identify merely as Chinese because we also have to think about what it means to be Chinese. And um, a lot of uh, older 
generation of Hong Kong people, people in Hong Kong, um, may identify with being culturally Chinese, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they support the um, regime, the ruling regime in China. And what you've seen in recent years is that increasingly uh, Beijing has um, sort of pushed this idea of conflating the state and the political power in China with the notion of what it means to be Chinese. And the more that it does that, the more it will push away um, Hong Kongers who do not identify with the regime, I think. Mm. You're talking to us here in Connecticut. Uh, for many of us, Hong Kong uh, may not be on our radar. Uh, you know, how has the U.S. and other uh, nations responded to, again, these demonstrations in in Hong Kong? And also when we think about our country's relationship with China, um, you know, how that all uh, take is, should be taken into account, UN. Well, I think that for people in Hong Kong, the international community's response to their struggle is very important, and they definitely take uh, a lot of solace in the support that they get internationally. Um, so there is a the moral impact, I think, is uh, very important. Uh, but there are also more practical things. Uh, we saw in the U.S. that uh, all the attempts, well, not attempts, but what the uh, Senate and Congress have done to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Um, a lot of people in Hong Kong support that. Um, it's seen as a real boon. Of course, we still don't know yet if uh, President Trump will sign it. Um, so people will be uh, looking towards that. Um, I guess some of them are very disappointed in the fact that the president has um, sort of tried to well, some of the comments that he made about he's the only reason that PLA uh, haven't obliterated Hong Kong yet and trying to use Hong Kong as a pawn in the China, in, in his trade war with China. Um, we have seen support for Hong Kong from various Western countries, and this is welcome. And I think Hong Kong people would like to see um, more, really. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. My guest today, Yuan Chan, senior lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University of London. She was a longtime Hong Kong-based journalist. Again, violent demonstrations in Hong Kong have subsided, rather, but the protests have damaged how some residents view the Hong Kong police. We're going to talk more about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Where we live is coming to a coffee shop near you. We're hosting a coffee break at local coffee shops around Connecticut to hear from you. What issue or story in your community is not getting the attention it needs? You can join the Where We Live team at Silk City Coffee in Manchester, Connecticut. That's Tuesday, December 10th. You can learn more at our Facebook page. Just search where we live. Now, today we've been focusing on Hong Kong after nearly six months of pro-democracy demonstrations there. Some of those protests have turned violent with clashes between residents and police, most recently at Hong Kong's Polytechnic University. The demonstrations started because of an extradition bill. But now the protests are largely about how the police have handled the protests. Uh, joining us for more context uh, from WHYY in Philadelphia is Alan Yu, a reporter for The Pulse, a health and science show who's reported stories from and about Hong Kong for WHYY and This American Life. Alan, welcome to where we live. 
Hi, thank you for having me. I should mention to our listeners, uh, we're very fond of Alan. Uh, he came through uh, Connecticut several years ago during NPR training. So great to hear from you, Alan. Is lovely to be on. Now, I should tell our listeners, uh, you also grew up in Hong Kong. And so uh, as a child, what were your impressions of the Hong Kong police? Yes, that's right. I spent the most of my life in Hong Kong. And I would say that as far as I can remember, the Hong Kong police were always sort of trusted uh, authority figures. You know, um, if you look at a lot of the pop culture that's created around Hong Kong from the time when I was growing up and I am a child of the 90s, um, <laughs> we were they, they were very respected. I mean, you know, we have many shows where they were treated as heroes. They're the people who come in to, you know, uh, uphold law and order in Hong Kong. So I think they had uh, the public's trust for as far as I can remember. Uh, uh, from uh, your time in Hong Kong, especially during uh, these uh, protests over the last six months, uh, that uh, feeling among residents has changed again because of uh, violence. But uh, tell us what you've been hearing from Hong Kongers directly. Yeah, so I think that there have been sort of, as far as I can tell, two uh, major turning points. One, as you uh, and Yuan have discussed, was the 2015 or 2014 umbrella movement. That, I think, was, you know, um, a big change when we saw uh, the police tear gassing protesters. And also there was one very controversial incident where seven police officers were seen on camera kicking and beating an activist who was already in custody. And that that case wound up through the court system, and I believe those officers were actually convicted. Um, and so that was one major turning point when it came to how the Hong Kong people and the police uh, saw each other. And then uh, during this year's anti-extradition bill protests, as both you and Yuan have brought up, uh, that trust has even further broken down as you see uh, the police uh, using even more violent tactics than they did in 2015 using tear gas, batons, rubber bullets, uh, pepper spray, um, and including in recent weeks when they've sort of waged war on some college campuses even. Uh, we should note uh, that uh, there uh, are protesters that have also been uh, attacking police officers. And so that really adds to the tension, uh, Alan, uh, during these demonstrations, uh, particularly at these college campuses. Uh, but you uh, did a couple of stories that we really wanted to highlight. Uh, before we get to uh, this sit down that you did uh, with um, uh, a man and his son who you grew up with in Hong Kong, you also looked into the science of protests and how police should respond to demonstrations. What, what did you learn? Yes. So uh, uh, the kind of impetus for the story was basically I've been seeing a lot of the coverage and like uh, many of my friends and peers from Hong Kong were shocked at seeing how the police cracked down on the protesters. And so I wondered, well, I'm a science reporter. And so I wondered, you know, is this the really the best way to deal with protests? And how do police forces around the world sort of deal with the crowd psychology problem of what is the best way to handle protests so that they end peacefully? And what I found was that actually both in the UK and here in the US, there have been um, other police officers who found um, 
ways of handling protests that could end peacefully. So, for example, I'll take the U.S. example. There was a a police chief who was the police chief of Madison, Wisconsin uh, in the 1970s during in the height of the uh, anti-Vietnam War protests. And, you know, this this was a very tense time, right? You had police, you know, uh, beating protesters, using tear gas on college campuses. And this young police chief sort of came in and thought, you know, this really isn't working for us very well. What can we do differently? And so he uh, instructed his officers to not go in with force, to talk to the protesters, figure out what they want, and sort of explain to them that police are there to protect their right to protest and that the police serve to uphold democracy and make sure that people can express their thoughts peacefully. And that ended up being, you know, uh, what the research shows. Uh, there, uh, I mentioned there's been research in the UK also that says that, you know, if you, if you go about and think of the protesters not as this kind of mindless mob of people who are criminals, but you think of them as just people who want to make a point and the the role of the police is to figure out how do we help them make that point um, without with the minimum amount of conflict, then that really can end well. Mm. Uh, you mentioned these this evidence-based uh, practices that have worked, but uh, police departments don't all adopt that tactic uh, uh, where uh, they are all uh, geared up and they are definitely looking very intimidating. But at the same time, they're responsible for controlling crowds. And so um, how do uh, police departments navigate, uh, again, uh, this idea of making sure that they're uh, preserving uh, public safety, but at the same time, uh, you know, sometimes people get uh, out of hand. How should they respond, Alan? What did you learn? Yes. I mean, I won't say that I can come up with a definitive answer of what they should do. I will say that one of the uh, crowd policing experts I spoke to here in the U.S. gave what I thought was kind of the best um, argument for, you know, think about what the police officers have to deal with, right? They show up at a protest and they don't know what could happen. It could be, you know, just it 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 it, it, it could end well or, you know, it could turn badly. I mean, you know, there, there, there could be, as you say, some violence. And, and she said, basically, think about how complicated a simple traffic stop can be, right? Um, how much of the situation can change depending on how the person responds, how the police officer responds, and how that can get out of control. And she said, well, you multiply that by thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands, and that can be sometimes what police officers face on the front lines. And But I think it does make a big difference, as both the police chiefs I interviewed pointed out, it makes a big difference as to just what the police, you know, wear or are prepared or, you know, go in with a mindset of doing. And so uh, I will say that that is, I think, is, is one important factor in how things turn out is, you know, what do the police see their role as playing and how are they prepared, what uniforms they wear, whether they do they go in with uh, helmets and goggles and shields and batons or do they, you know, wear their, you know, regular uniforms with their uh, name cards and ID numbers out and just go and prepare to talk. I think um, the police chiefs I spoke to said that that can make a huge difference when it comes to how people uh, respond.
Alan Hughes, a reporter for the Pulse, a health and science show for member station WHYY. We're talking with him today because he's reported stories about Hong Kong for WHYY and This American Life. Again, uh, this is a Chinese territory that has seen uh, demonstrations, uh, some violent over the last uh, six months, uh, pro-democracy uh, demonstrations. Uh, Alan, you wanted to learn more about this, again, this divide between uh, some Hong Kong residents and the police. So you sat down with a retired police officer in Hong Kong and his son. Yes. So uh, this is kind of um, kind of a personal story for me. I, and that's so uh, the very first police officer I ever knew uh, growing up was my friend's father. And uh, I sort of uh, kind of lost touch with them a little bit, uh, especially when I went to the U.S. Uh, but um, I've been following my friend uh, on social media, and I know that he is uh, in favor of the protests and, in fact, has been to many of them. But I also know that, you know, his father is a recently retired police officer. And so I thought that I, I had heard a lot about there being a generational divide between um, uh, protesters and maybe people of their parents' generation when it comes to how they view the protests. And so I thought, well, here's my friend and his father. Uh, they belong to different generations, but also... Um, his, uh, my friend's father is also a police officer, has been so for many years. And I thought, well, what do they think separately about the protests and what would they talk to if they could talk to each other? Because I've been hearing also a lot about how, you know, um, uh, the police and the police have sort of, uh, they really are like very anti-protest uh, at this point and and the protesters also have no love for the police and so i thought you know well here's a family i know that they both love and respect each other they in fact live together and so i thought well what would happen if i got them to sit down and talk to each other and what did happen alan well, um, so my friend and I were both kind of nervous. We knew that uh, my friend's father was, you know, very pro-police and very firmly in that camp. And at first, uh, so normally they don't really talk about this as much. I think they've both recognized, uh, and their mother, um, have recognized that this is kind of a touchy point uh, for everyone involved. And so at first they kind of talked around the issue. They sort of framed, they talked about it in sort of abstract terms you know, uh, uh, this is, you know, what they think about the protests and this is what's happening. But then uh, later on, um, it got a little bit more personal because they recognized that, you know, what well, we're talking about the protesters, but he was one of them sitting right there. Uh, and, and, and then, they, and then uh, the father uh, said that, you know, well, the police have a right to arrest them. It's kind of hard to tell who are the people who are, you know, doing the violent acts and who are the people who are you know, uh, like his son, like my friend, just, you know, just there uh, supporting the, 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 the protesters. And so he's, he, he kind of said that, you know, if he were there, he might, you know, be open to arresting him. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, and so, um, and I think, but then the whole family uh, also recognized that, you know, that they could have pushed this discussion further, but then they obviously didn't want to start an argument. Uh, and then like everyone just backed off. But it, it did get a little bit more contentious as the discussion uh, continued. We're going to link to your story, uh, WNPR.org slash where we live. Again, Alan Yu, a reporter for The Pulse. So we just have a couple of minutes left. I wanted to go back to my other guest, Yuan Chan, senior lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University 
University of London. Uh, Yuan, we talked again about this. It seemed to be a turning point, these local elections, again, uh, pro-democracy candidates uh, getting a lot of support, record turnout. Uh, What will you be looking for in the weeks ahead? Is this movement able to be sustained, do you think? Well, you know, around uh, a few months ago, if you had asked me what there would be no way that I could have predicted that the the protests would still be going on when they started. And so it's really very hard to make predictions. Um, I think it's far from over. Um, People feel that they've sacrificed too much um, and in a way got too little out of it to go home um, and to, to just get off the streets. Um, I think that the, um, these elections do present um, a possibility for the government. Um, they have said that they're, they're listening humbly, that they respect the result. Uh, and so everybody will be looking to see, you know, what will they actually do in practice to listen humbly and respect the result. Uh, the people have spoken very clearly. Um, that at the end of the day, uh, you know, the Hong Kong government hands also tied by uh, what Beijing will permit it to do. So it's it's very hard to predict what will happen going forward. Um, it will be interesting to see. We, we will have more elections next year for the Legislative Council, which has far more power than these district councillors do. Um, will the movement be able to... Um, avoid the kind of infighting that characterized what happened after 2014 um, is kind of key um, to how uh, the movement can sustain and not fracture. So those are the kinds of things that uh, I think most of us will be looking at. And then uh, also, Yuan, just real quick, could Hong Kong, Hong Kong ever be fully autonomous from China? Is that something that could ever be uh, in, in reality? Well, I think it's important to note that people are asking for meaningful autonomy, the the high level of autonomy that they were promised uh, when Hong Kong's uh, sovereignty was handed over to China uh, in 1997. Um, And that means the the idea of Hong Kong people running Hong Kong, uh, at the time Hong Kong people were given the understanding that they would run all their affairs except for in the areas of uh, defense, and foreign national security and foreign relations. Um, so it's important to know, and because especially a lot of people, uh, a lot of commentators on the mainland have tried to paint these current protests as an attempt to split Hong Kong from China, as an attempt uh, to uh, get Hong Kong independence. And I think it's very important to note that Hong Kong independence has never Mm. really been a main rallying cry at all of these protests and that what people want is to have um, the meaningful autonomy of running Mm. their day-to-day affairs. And UN, we'll have to, to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. UN Chan, senior lecturer in the Department of Journalism at the City University of London. Also, thanks to Alan Yu, a reporter for The Pulse at WHYY. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.